Hello and welcome to Stuff We've Seen. This is your host, James Kent. Uh, with me on the mic, a uh, different mic, not my mic, <laughs> will be uh, Bill Muir, or I sometimes refer to him as Bill from Queens, and he is going to be helping out again for this uh, fourth installment of our peak at Neo-Noir from the lens of, I guess, Criterion Channel in their 26-film Neo-Noir series. Billy, are you there, sir? I'm here, Jimmy. I'm here. Absolutely. Is the the bunny with you this episode or uh you know, I'm in I'm in a different part of the house. Mm-hmm. I know that sounds really suspicious. It does, especially for those <laughs> who have listened to part one, two, and three. I'm a little concerned about this bunny, but that's okay. Uh so we won't have any more jokes after this moment about the bunny. Uh, the we bunny... might we might. I just want to say don't be worried about the bunny. And just say, <laughs> that bunny lives better than nine tenths of humanity. Okay? <laughs> yes. And of course, uh you you made a crack. I think it was on episode two. Uh, it went by me a little fast, but uh, that you said that you know it was a perfect pet for your family, and that again, for those who don't know, you have literally twenty kids, <laughs> right? <laughs> no, no, you have five kids, I, which is I've, a lot, I've, I've, right? I've got, I've You're got, not Mormon, got, yeah, right? Yeah, for a non-Mormon yeah, no. person, that's a uh, lot. No, no. <laughs> No, I don't. Uh, no, I like caffeine too much. You're devout so. Catholic, or you're just very horny. I don't know. Um, anyways, hey, you have five wonderful kids. I've actually, believe it or not, I've met three of them. Though the the first one I met when he was like maybe not even a year old. Um, yes. And then I ran into you several years ago with your two daughters at a screening, seventy millimeter, at the Museum of the Modern Image, and you were with your two daughters, twin daughters. See West Side Story. See West Side yes. Story, and I took my oldest, who was very young now that i look back i'm like oh my god he was pretty young because that was like six years ago but uh we hadn't been in touch for years and since you're like a leadite and you don't have any social media (laughs) presence there was just no way to get in touch with you and then there you go by design jimmy by design the funny thing is i have like a good facial recognition and i can spot people and i spotted you right away but i think i could have stayed behind you in line the whole time and you would not have recognized me no i absolutely recognized you and it was like it was it was um a feeling like there was some kind of setup i was <laughs> no it would have been better is if you would like been like i'd be like who the hell are you i would have like told my kid just pretend like you don't know this person and i'd be like i don't know what you're talking about get off back off scary man <laughs> that would have been a funny gag but uh but i gotta say it says it says everything about your devotion to um the movies <laughs> the fact that you would get in the car with your kid take a, a four and a half hour drive yeah. five hour drive to go see a movie, a three-hour movie, get in the car, turn around, and go home. That's exactly what I did. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. But that's what you do, like, frequently. Like, yes. you know, well. th- this is not, like, every once in a while. Like, you do this. Um, I mean, you did this a couple of weeks ago to go see, and not even to see, like, you know, classics. 
you know, you went to go see, you know, F9 and Black Widow. <laughs> well, you know what? It's only because it, it was it was sort of like, let's let's kind of kick this back off and do stuff. And I just found out that my theater locally wasn't going to be even showing movies anymore. And I, I guess a few weeks ago, the Delta variant, like it suddenly wasn't raging so rampantly that uh, when discovering that people who are vaccinated were getting it, I don't think I would be right. taking the boys, especially if my youngest isn't vaccinated because he's under right. 12. Uh, right. I, I'm probably not going to be you know, taking the troops to a, to a movie anytime soon. Uh, just because, I mean, there's such a large population that for some reason says, I'm not going to get vaccinated. Well, I don't, I, you can't be, you know, it's not like they hit the, there's like an invisible aura around them that shows, oh, those are the vaccinated ones and those aren't. So, you know, no. it comes unfortunately to indoors, uh, you got to be a little bit more careful. But I will go, if there's something worth seeing somewhere, uh, I might not go to that theater, but I might go, but it'll have to be like a double feature. Now, I, I do want to see that Green Knight movie. I have no idea what is it. Oh, jeez. The David Laurie movie? No. Okay. No. Well, you know, you're, you're about as well, at least. At least if I said that, Teal would know. He just would never see it. Probably. He but. watches the trailers, doesn't he? No, he hates doing that. Yeah. But anyways, look. And now, now it's like, wow. We've just we're, we're already behind. So behind in part four. <laughs> and now we've just spent ten minutes not talking about Neo Noir. So listen. All right. Little housekeeping on part three. I, don't know, I think we were rushing at the end. We were trying to squeeze in a bunch of stuff because we know how many we, we have to get to. And uh, on the list for 1984, because we'd already started getting into 1985, but 84, we did miss a key movie that's part of the Criterion Collection. Uh, and that is 1984's Brian De Palma movie, Body Double. Which, which you and Teal have spoken about twice before. Yes. And I think that was one of the reasons why we won't really spend much time on it. So for those of you who are like, what? wait, wait, wait a minute. I just started listening to you guys. Well, listen, you go back, uh, go to our website, stuffweseen.com. We have every episode that we've ever done, and we're way over 100 now. Um, they're all up there for you to check out. You could go to the early days, <laughs> any, 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 you know, any year you want from the last few years. Earlier, like the very end of uh, 2020, we started with Brian De Palma. And we covered Body Double. And then uh, early this year, really super treat for those who haven't listened to it already, we were able to get the star of Body Double, uh, Craig Wasson, on the show. And he did two episodes with us. And it was totally awesome. And he, and he had a little some stories to share from, you know, being a part of Body Double, which I thought was cool. So quickly, I have not rewatched it on Criterion, but I right. rewatched it at the beginning of the year when we were doing those episodes. So I have seen Body Double um, in the past year. And I, you know, if I have time, I'll probably get to it again. I, I really like a lot about it. And again, it was like kind of like a good staple for me in the 80s, you know, and I kind of, when I watched it, it kind of brought me back to when I watched it, you know, as a kid. Right. I, I saw it when I was a, a teenager as well. And um, very titillating for a 14-year-old boy. Yeah. And I mean, you know, look, I, I don't want to say it's problematic now, but I mean, if you look at De Palma's work, there's a lot of problematic aspects to his work that people criticize then. And now, yes. of course, now it would be like, well, you can't make a movie like that where somebody has like a 20-inch drill that they drill through somebody and a woman. and Right. Uh, but uh, but you have to admit, it's it's shocking, shocking and shockingly well done. Well, that's that's the whole thing, right? That's why I think his films are always worth checking out because yes, one of the interviews that you can you know listen to with uh, De Palma, and he always says is that what he hates is your traditional back and forth and your traditional camera setups. Nothing drives him more mental than oh, here we're gonna we're gonna cut to you and react to you, and that's how we're over the shoulder shot. And while obviously you have to have some of that in movies. 
he spends enormous amount of time breaking down an entire film when he's going to shoot it and figuring out how do I tell this scene in a more interesting way? And as a result, you get some very, very interesting, cool, you know, pieces of cinema. And it's um, a kind of brilliant, if you will, reimagination or fusion, I think, of both rear window and vertigo, which is kind of incredible. Yeah. And of course, you know, he'll always say, well, you know, Hitchcock influences are there, but it's really my own thing. And it's also his own voyeuristic tendencies and stuff that came up mm-hmm. from his childhood and, and his father who um, he had to spy on <laughs> for his mom and stuff like that. And so, you know, it's definitely a near noir. And mm-hmm. it's a good one, in my opinion, even though, I mean, you look, there's some stuff that I can see where people aren't going to like it. That's right. okay. If, even if someone says, I didn't like it, I would press them and say, yeah, but you have to admit that it has A, B, C, D, and E great scenes, right? Yes. And, yes. you know, I mean, that, they always say what the making of a good movie is that they got to have like two or three good scenes. I would say Body Double has at least five. Yes. You know? Yes, without a doubt. And, um, and the performances are great. I got to say, Melanie Griffith is fantastic, who we spoke about before in Night Move. She's really, you know, obviously it's it's a more mature performance, uh, you know, than, I mean, she really was like a kid when she did Night Moves. And it, it's very funny. Wasson is, is excellent. And he has an innocence that, say, like Jeff Bridges, I don't think would have if he were to like have been cast in that. Another kind of neo-noir uh, actor staple. Well, yeah. So that that is the thing is that uh, you know it's funny you bring up the Jeff Bridges comparison because it is like Craig Watson. He plays like an everyman. I mean, he has to go and become a detective. And I think what is interesting is his character um, isn't a detective; he's an actor. And right. so I always find that one of the things about neo noirs quite often is a, a character is thrust into the position of being some sort of detective having to uncover a mystery. And I don't know, this is, again, this would be another, if you're looking to do new neo-noirs, it might be interesting to then take that from a female perspective, because obviously a lot of these are male-centric, where there's female characters that will help the lead actor out on their journey. But I'd like to see it where the woman is the person who has to find the detective aspect. Do we have any of those? Are there any examples? I can't, maybe as we go along, but I got to think about that one. But I, I mean, but but at the same time, you know, he's he's thrust in the role of a detective, but he's also a mark. Right. And I always love how it is really one of the tropes of noir, how the main character is is very often is be, is a dupe, is a mark. It's a setup and they're playing upon, you know, some character flaw. Well, that's that's the that's the vertigo comparison, because Jimmy right. Stewart has vertigo. So magically, when he's being set up, they think, well, this will be great because he won't be able to, like, get up to the top of the tower. And mm-hmm. that's the whole idea that Craig Wasson, his uh, fears, his claustrophobia, right, is going to play a part in why he cannot save the day kind of thing. And he's going to have to overcome his fear in order to try to save the day. I, I just have to say, um, do you uh, have great, to, do great you film. just have to, say, I do our listening audience, right? Clear it up. <laughs> Bill, Billy just has to say something. What do you have get, to get say? The, yeah. Get the ticker. That it's, it's just really, is a great, uh, I, I think a, a great neo-noir really yeah. good. So sorry, we got that out of order, but you know, Hey, we're now back in order. And like I said, you should check that out. But also, if you want to hear more on Body Double from us, you know, look, certainly you got to go back and you got to listen to the Craig Wasson episode. And, uh, you know, if Craig can can get his technology up to date, I think he'd like to come back on and, and we could, he could talk some more about Body Double because uh, we'd love to have him. He's pretty awesome. 
Um, I, I send him uh, links to our episodes and he listens to them, which is look really cool. And, and then we, we have a little back and forth. Um, so nice. uh, Craig, you're, you're the man. And uh, I wish I had more New Unawars with Craig Watson in it because uh, I think he, he was a great everyman kind of guy that would be super in some more. So. Mm-hmm. And, and, and where it worked this again, just the idea that, um, you know, because he's a voyeur, he still comes across as wholesome at the same time is what, you know, is, which is a very tough thing to pull off. Right. But even though like, right, but there was a whole aspect is, and I think he said this when, when he was talking to us is that, right, his character has to be a little pervy because it, it wouldn't work. He wouldn't, he would be like, well, I can't look into that mirror, but he's set up to look out the um, telescope and mm-hmm. curiosity can't help but continue to look. And that's what the person who's setting him up counts on. Right. 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 So, all right. So now we're going to 1985 and we'd already talked about Trouble in Mind and there's not another uh, film from Criterion in 85, but there's a couple of mentions of some neo-noirs that I, I would want to mention and that you should check out if you hadn't thought about it as a neo-noir. 1985, uh, it's a, it's one of the a sort of subgenre, I think, with neo-noir, which is the comedy neo-noir. And uh, the good one, I think, is uh, 1985's Fletch. Yes. Um, and again, I don't want to really talk too much about it, but people will be like, oh, that's a new noir? Yes, it is. <laughs> Absolutely. Michael Ritchie. And I think, did William Goldman do the screenplay? I forget who did the He might the have, but it definitely, um, it's an 80s movie. It has a feel. Right. It's, it's got the, it's got the, what, Harold Faltemeyer uh Faltemeyer score. That's right. It's got Chevy Chase. I think in one of his, one of his better performances. Best performance. Yeah, absolutely. That's, it's. Um, perfectly tailored films. to what he does with his deadpan stuff and right. you know it is that setup where somebody says they are and we talked about this a little bit with like the american friend but in this case a guy approaches him says i am dying and i want my wife to get the insurance money and i Tim want Matheson. yeah and i want you to kill me so that's an interesting premise and of course he doesn't know that fletch is a reporter and right. so Fletch just kind of wants to see what this angle is. And then, and it ties in with another story about corruption and drugs, right. on, you know, on the beach. so I, it, it really is a layered neo-noir. And I think that it could be, cause I haven't read the books, but I'm sure it could be handled a completely different way. Right. And yet it was, you know, here, and it, it's funny is that many, many, many times there's been talk about sequels or rebooting the series and it always goes, well there was one sequel but it's not very good oh well that's an actual right fletch lives right <laughs> fletch lives yeah, yeah there's a couple of funny moments and i did see that uh, at, a, at a special preview when it first came out when i was a freshman in college and uh, i've never watched it a second time yeah nor have i but yeah you are correct but they've tried to reboot the series many times and now it is getting rebooted and it's going to be a series maybe a limited series on some streaming network i'm not sure which and it is going to be a combination of the two guys from Mad Men there. John Hamm? John Hamm. John Hamm's John Hamm. Um, yes, John Hamm is going to be Fletch. And then John Slattery is also going to be in it. Maybe it's his editor or something that he always plays, but they're, they're, they're both right. signed on. So that ought to be interesting. Wow. That's, uh, that sounds interesting. Absolutely. Okay, so that wasn't on Criterion, but it's something you could check out. And then another one that it wasn't on Criterion, but I'm counting it because it was on Turner Classic Movies. And I mentioned it before, I think, when Teal and I talked about uh, Neon Noir. And I think it's just one of the best uh, neon 
or not, well, neon, but also neon noirs of the entire 80s. And I think it's actually yes. one of the best films of the 80s. It's one of these movies that sat there and had maybe some people who liked it. But over the years, it's just gained in notoriety and, and as far as, you know, what a great movie it is. And that's To Live and Die in L.A. I, incredibly underrated. Um, I loved it at the time when I saw it. And it's very hard actually to find. Really? I, I've I've found I, I mean I had a DVD of it I think you know ages ago <laughs> but um, you know it's not something you know it's something that I would imagine it should be on TV like all the time. I it probably pops up you know just as you say this now look for it when it does like show up at streaming I guess um, but it's William Friedkin and 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 one of Friedkin's best films. It's one of like Friedkin's there. best absolutely. Yeah, I mean like top four. So it's like you know the French Connection, Exorcist, Sorcerer, and this. Yeah. Without a doubt. And and basically, and then the drop-off beyond that is pretty steep. Yeah. But I'm glad he, you know, and again, at the time, people weren't really lauding this movie. I mean, it really, I'm, sh- I'm sure there were some critics, but otherwise it was like, you know, it didn't do that well. And part of the reason was, and it's kind of tough for those who haven't seen it, but let's just say it doesn't have your traditional happy ending <laughs> to the movie. No, um, no. Pretty dark, but that also is what makes it a neo-noir. But here's what I like. This, these are things that... Even while it took me a while, because when I saw it, like as a teenager, even me, I was kind of not satisfied with the ending because that's just not what you typically get. Um, and now I love right. it. I love everything about it. And and I've seen the ending that the studio wanted him to use, and they made him right. shoot after the fact. They had to do a reshoot to shoot the ending. He created an ending that he didn't think that there would be anything a studio could do. And they still went back and said, no, you got to reshoot it. And he's like, but that doesn't make any sense. They said, you have to. And he just refused to put it in the movie. And the stars of the movie said, we will have nothing to do with this movie. We won't promote it or anything if you make him use that. And they were like, fine. But then they also didn't promote it. They was like, the revenge was like, fine. You want it your way? Great. But then this is what you're going to have to deal with. We're not going to push this movie at all. Right. Um, And it's funny is that I think that at the time, if they used that ending as hokey and stupid as it is, the movie could have been a big hit. Really? Oh, yeah. Just because that's how people are. Um, But why I like the movie, it's the atmosphere. So this is a film called To Live and Die in L.A., which not so subtly, pay attention to that title because it actually pays off by the end of the movie. You know, that's that's the, the 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 whole secret to the film is right there in the title. But for a movie that is set in L.A., you're expecting um, what most people expect is what's called the high tourist look at L.A. And that would be all of the cool spots shot in an interesting way. Oh, right. you know, it, this is uh, you can recognize it as L.A. No, no, no. This is a working man's film where L.A. is the ultimate low tourist. If you took L.A. out of the title and you never mentioned it, you wouldn't know where this movie was taking place. Right. Isn't a lot of stuff around like the port and Long Beach and kind of more industrial. Yeah, it's like L.A. County and around. It's just you don't see anything recognizable, but yet you you're, everything is very interesting. And of course, uh, we mentioned this in episode two, and I said it would come back, is the cinematography is by Robbie Mueller. And yes. he, being a European... Uh, and maybe with his work with the likes of Wim Wenders, when they would approach a film that they were shooting in America, it was always interesting. Another thing is that Robbie Muller, maybe he was just hanging out in L.A. shooting films because in 1984, he shot one of my all-time favorite movies, Repo Man. 
And that's another film that shot in the outskirts of L.A. and not really in the L.A. that we know. So I think he had a flair for the look of what he wanted to shoot and what Friedkin wanted to shoot. And so that made it very interesting. The the visual look is is just so wonderful and and really makes the movie in in so many ways. And um, not just even, you know, sort of the the composition, like all all the stuff shot around like Rick Master's house and everything. The counterfeiter is is really just sort of beautifully done, beautifully framed. But the action is incredible. It's really like, you know. Well, that's it got famous for this one scene, this uh this car chase and it is like you watch it every time you watch it's so well done it took him like two weeks to film and what a lot of people don't realize is that robbie muller wasn't the person who actually shot that it was really yeah it was his assistant uh, the second unit uh, cinematographer uh, a little guy named robert yeoman who uh would go on to shoot every single wes anderson movie okay He's fantastic, and he was responsible for shooting that. And I'm sure Freakin had to be involved in some capacity, even though it was like kind of, it was. It's sort of like how uh, in Ben Hur, right? The whole second unit was the one that shot the, the chariot race. The chariot, but you race, know that the directors are involved from a standpoint of like how we're going to do this. But that that sequence is the one sequence that even back then, yeah, that, that was the thing like people, people talked about. People singled it out, and they really, I mean, part of the thing everyone was making comparison to the French Connection, and I actually think this is a better car chase than the French connection, the iconic scene of, you know, um, Gene Hackman, Popeye Doyle chasing down the guy on the the subway. I actually think this is a better car chase. Well, this feels like it's actually happening. Like you you don't see stunts. You don't see, there's certainly no CGI. And when it's happening, it's so intense. As many times as you watch it, you're still on the edge of your seat feeling like they're going to crash into another car. Right. And, and, And also to add it even into this, the performances, Peterson's recklessness and like just like how how insanely bullheaded and crazy Peterson is. And then John Panko as his partner who is like flipping out over everything. Well, you can see like there's this great thing where Panko's holding his hand out to the window, like like yep. going to people, well, no, no, clear like they can't they're driving they're, this car is driving the wrong way on the freeway. And right. these cars obviously his hand signals aren't doing anything, but it's that panic. It's it's brilliant act it's yes. brilliant it's just it's one of the great sequences of action that you'll ever see. And yes. then another great sequence that happens towards the beginning, which I think is so smart because it's going to get you into the whole film, is that it's kind of tricky that you're being introduced to a world that most people didn't know. Like the Secret Service, everybody thinks of as this branch that protects the president. And it changed a little bit after 9-11 when Homeland Security came in. They, they, they folded Secret Service into a different department, but they were also, they used to be under the Treasury Department. And one of their That's big right. things was they were ch- uh, checking out, you know, uh, chasing down counterfeiting rings. And back in the 40s, whenever you did a, a film or even the 50s, you were never allowed to show real money and you could not show any part of a counterfeiting process you couldn't even photo. You were never allowed to photograph actual money, uh, and right. it's still ruled this today. You cannot have real money on a set; like it has to be fake uh, money. Right. But you couldn't show any part of that process. So part of this being a neo noir is that for the first time you were able to show the process that someone went through to make fake money. And and you see Willem Dafoe do that at the very beginning. Rick Masters. So. Yeah. Great, because you get to see, instead of just talking about, and they have a montage that shows how this fake money is circulated throughout the LA community, and that's pretty good. It is. 
but the typical movie would have had a forego like, oh yeah, he's a forger and he does some kind of stuff. Uh, maybe they show him throw the stuff in the laundry to like kind of launder it a bit. But no, you get every aspect of how he does it. It is just, it's still the greatest sequence. It's it's wonderful. And I actually got to say underrated about this as well is the music by Wang Chung. No, well, that, you, you, you were really, really giggling good. at the time. It was like uh, Wang Chung was already over and done with kind of thing when this movie came out. It was sort of a joke that like Wang Chung's doing the score. And then they did this song. No, no, no. The score is amazing in this movie. Yes. Yes. It, everything about this movie is just grit. It's gritty. And like- Do you, the, do you remember, I got to say, do you know what, for me, the very first time I saw it, person whose performance stood out to me, like really jumped off the screen and I had never seen them before? John Turturro. Oh, he's great. He's incredible. He's the mother effer who did me. <laughs> that mother- I'm going to give him a serious headache. Oh, Totoro is great. And then, of course, that same year, no, no, a year later, he's great in um, The Color of Money. What? You're laughing. No, he is. Yeah, he is. He was, but I just, but he really, he really, really stood out for me in this. And just, um, and Defoe is fantastic. A lot of the- Dean the Stockwell. Dean Stockwell, Robert Downey Sr. as uh, the supervisor. But you know what, though, here's the interesting thing about, because I just, well, I don't know if you got, you haven't rewatched it, right? I haven't seen it in a long time. So Dean Stockwell's interesting because it, it's his character and performance that he is the shady lawyer who can't be trusted. And right. while uh, Pankow is torn and wants yep. to turn himself in for what he did, it's the actions of Dean Stockwell. And the result of those happen. actions that make him say, this whole thing is corrupt and you know what? Screw it. I haven't been caught. This is how it is. And then he ends up continuing on the William Peterson role, including like he he, he starts to develop his walk and his look and his and his clothing style. It's it's so freaking cool. And, and in the end, basically, he, he owns another human being. Yeah. Which is like a chilling chilling moment at the end really really you know darlan flugel is really actually quite good i know see it's funny we love these like little character um actors that they didn't really have these like big noticeable careers but like even as teenagers these people made an impression on me yep yep so okay you know why why would i even include to, to live and die in la only because i, I really think it belongs in this list, it's it's like I mean again I know whatever rights they they did or didn't have, but let's just say they were just they could have put any movie they wanted to, and they just somehow forgot it. To me, to live and die in L.A. should have slotted right in there because they did include Manhunter, which is the yes. next film on our list, 1986. It was a rewatch for me. I hadn't seen it, and ah man, it had to have been good twenty plus years. I haven't seen it, and I'd say over ten years, but yes, I rewatched as well. And um, my my kids um, kind of came in and they their immediate reaction was, oh, it's the 80s, because it's almost kind of feels like a parody of the 80s. <laughs> yeah, it's very 80s. Um, it's got a lot of Michael Mann uh, touches. I would say watching it this time around, you know what? It is. It's a little flawed and a little dated. It has, it has you know, those qualities. I, I, it's got um, two great things about it, though, or three, three great things, in my opinion. You want those three Brian things? Brian Cox. Are? Brian Cox, who is this going to be blasphemy? <laughs> but I actually think that in many ways, he's not as iconic as as uh, as Anthony Hopkins. Yeah, he's not as iconic as Anthony Hopkins. But I actually think he's the better Hannibal Lecter. Yes. 
And it's yes. only because it's a different approach and it was, well, directed differently. And of course, they made this movie several years before Silence of the Lambs. And right. it's not 100% supposed to slide in. But I re- I remember at the time, in 1986, seeing it, as, it when I worked at the movie theater, I was like, I like that. That's a great, creepy uh, villain. It's a very interesting character. Yes, absolutely. And I had seen, it's very funny that I had seen him he used to do, um, I think for the BBC and on PBS, this like kind of Shakespearean acting lessons where you do. So I kind of knew him <laughs> from that, that you'd see him, you know, that they they do like scene study. And I remember um, just like, oh, that's the guy from there. And I remember like even knowing who he was being creeped out by his performance. <laughs> and then, of course, the last the, the next thing I remembered him from, though he was probably in a lot of things between 86 and 98, was uh, Rushmore. He's like, Max, we don't offer a postgraduate year at Rushmore. <laughs> <laughs> I, I seem to remember that that being part of the reason they wanted to cast him was that they loved his performance in, uh, in Manhunter. He's so good. But and, of course, now he gets he, the best role ever in succession. But the thing also about the movie... There, there are some kind of dated elements, like you said. I mean, obviously, um, a lot of the the lighting, a lot of the set design, a lot of um, the thing that I find hilarious, and it's a very Michael Mann thing. So the guy who works in the FBI lab is wearing almost some variation of like he he looks more like a stereo salesman, like at like you know, some strip ball in the eighties. He has this kind of puffy shirt that he's wearing and you know final gunfight all done to Inagata DeVita is a little too much and when he jumps through that window yeah it was bad yeah I mean it was yeah, not that I mean it, it is a great movie to watch I watched it with my son and he really enjoyed it uh very much well the so the two the second and third thing that makes it worthwhile is the the villain the tooth fairy uh played by Tom Noonan he is just I mean he's awesome Mm-hmm. I love him. It and really then is. one of the first performances, and you get a taste of what a great actor uh, she is, is uh, Joan Allen. Karen, Joan Allen. Karen Allen. Not no. Karen Allen. <laughs> Karen Allen. That's okay. Last, Indeed. Right. <laughs> I uh, know Karen Allen. Uh, no, she's not in any <laughs> neo noir that I know of on this list. But uh, yeah, Joan Allen is great in it, and uh, like yeah, it, it, there's just some things that are very uh, kind of. 80s and the ending song is really cheesy too when i worked at the movie theater right we'd be cleaning the theater and i had to hear that song over it over it over again and uh you know i always have to you get into the theater with your bag ready to, to go and you get down to the front row so that as people go you can start cleaning from the bottom up and i had to see that freaking freeze frame by the beach that song like a whole bunch of times for a good three or four weeks however long manhunter was at the theater what i think is the most interesting contrast between Manhunter and Silence the Lambs is that in Silence the Lambs, they have um, Hannibal Lecter being kept in like Dracula's castle or like the (laughs) basement of some sort of like gothic sort of, you know, institution. It's like an Edgar Allan Poe's basement. Yeah. And in Manhunter, they're keeping him in like the Getty Museum or or the Guggenheim, you know, where he's like running around. Well, it feels more like a supermax prison in a sense than the other. And it probably feels more real in me. To me, it felt a little bit more realistic. Yes, yeah, but at the same time, it is it is more like the Guggenheim than like a Superman. <laughs> uh, and and uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Is this the movie where in a in a straight role, like no jokes whatsoever, Chris Elliott sh- oh, shows up? That's, 
Yeah, he's like one of the cabin boy guys. Cabin boy is one of the, and and he's he's being very serious. He's like, um, there were ligature marks upon this and that. Yeah, it's like it was like that, and then the abyss, right? Like this guy was going to carve himself out of drama. (laughs) It was weird. So uh, yeah, Um, but anyways, uh, okay. So that was '86. Now another movie, uh, a neo noir from '86, and we we mentioned it. I think very way back in the first uh, neo noir episode we were doing here uh, between you and I. Bill, mm-hmm. uh, we won't talk about too much more, but is Mona Lisa, and that was 1986, and that was the one that Michael Caine has a very, very villainous turn. Right. A, a cameo, actually a little more than a cameo, but um, uh supporting role, but incredibly foul and repugnant performed. Basically plays Jeffrey Epstein. <laughs> kind of, yes. And then uh, it was directed by Neil Jordan. And right. it, this thing features two amazing performances uh the first bob hoskins is like the lead but then i also found uh, and he was nominated this is like the first he was nominated, yeah, for, best nominated for best actor and i was really happy about that right but then the other person um who sort of plays uh this prostitute that he's trying to help out is uh, kathy tyson yes and she's uh, simone simone she got nominated for best supporting actress as i recall I think she no, did. No, 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 no. She was nominated she for some things, but not... She was a Golden uh, Globe, I think, nominee for right. Best Supporting Actress. But she did not get an Academy Award nominee, and that was a shame. That's unfortunate, yeah, because she was really good. Also has Robbie Coltrane in the movie. Robbie Coltrane's buddy, his, like, yeah, you know, mechanic uh, buddy, buddy who yeah. he lives with. Yes, right. But I, I think, you know, kind of a great film noir um, in the sense, the way that he gets sort of turned around, he's something of a mark himself, you know, and uh, Hoskins gives this really kind of terrific performance as this uh, kind of mob hanger on. Yeah, low level underworld. Guy, yeah. Like the way that he goes from tears to rage is really, really terrific, yeah. you know, uh, in it. Really well done. And um, there's a rabbit in the movie. Oh, there is. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking we're going to get back into the rabbits next year where uh, we, we could throw in Fatal Attraction. <laughs> the rabbits. Um, but uh, yeah, and then Hoskins, of course, I saw, and it's funny as I saw this after Mona Lisa, but in the early 80s, another neo-noir. And maybe it's, it's maybe more gangster, but The Long Good Friday. The Long Good Friday, and yes. that was sort of his breakout role and he plays more of the high-level mobster in that. Um, yes. And that's a really good film. Yeah, it's I, I it's one of my favorites. I uh, I'm really glad that's on Criterion all the time, actually. So I'm a little surprised they didn't include that. But what are you gonna do? You know that uh, only so many slots. Yeah, well, maybe they were like 26 is enough for people to kind of get a snack. <laughs> I mean, it's hard. I mean, you know, look, I didn't get through every one on a rewatch, but I did get through a lot. Um, right. Okay, so now 87. This is interesting because I think when I really look at it, they're offering us one movie, but there are like three others that are all from 87 that are neo noirs right. that you could check out in, in, in every way. Most of them are better than the one they gave us. This one is sort of an entry of maybe it was, it, I don't think it aged well at the time. It certainly hasn't aged well now, but it was kind of fun watching it for the first time since I saw it in the theater back in 87 was the bedroom window, which I actually never saw until I saw it just now. Wow. And uh, of course, the director um, was no stranger to the sort of thriller and neo-noir genre. Curtis Hansen, who did uh, L.A. Confidential, which comes out a decade later in 1997. And that is a great classic neo-noir. Absolutely. But The Bedroom Window was definitely uh, vibing on Hitchcock. Yes. 
Yes, very much so. Very much so. And, you know, and he did and he did a couple of other movies, you know, before L.A. Confidential that definitely were in that kind of um, thriller. Bad behavior, right? Is that bad behavior? I like definitely that Definitely a neo-noir with Rob Lowe. Yep. And um, James Spader. James Spader. Bad, bad influence. Bad influence. Sorry. Yes, you're, you're influence, correct. Yeah, yeah. I like that because you because because at the time, James Spader was always playing the bad guy and Rob Lowe was more of your good guy. And in this, the roles right. were reversed and James Spader right. plays the good guy. Right. But the bedroom window, I mean, not only is the plot really ridiculous and hard to, to buy and, and just some of the script conventions in it, but the lead guy is Steve Gutenberg and he's just not up Mahoney. to the task. Yeah. He's, you know what? <laughs> his problem was that even though he was doing nothing wrong, he had this ability where when he's playing it straight, he has this smirk that he makes and so he's yes. almost can't help but like make this it looks like he's laughing when he's not but he just so you don't buy him as a leading man you just didn't buy him in, in his unless it was a comedy at least in, in 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 a situation that's that dire and you know what they do in in noir that is like let's be honest there's a whole history where you cast somebody who's a little bit light and you put them in it like fred mcmurray right you know and you put them in a, a role where you're going to see somebody who's likable and enjoyable getting squeezed but but you're absolutely right i i mean part of it is just the baggage that i have with steve gutenberg <laughs> you, you've got the I gutenberg baggage <laughs> ever since the boys in brazil man <laughs> gutenberg it's been on that's your list right that's right hey, yeah remember think about that come think on think about that that's like but that's such an interesting like that's really really at the start of his career but after police academy you know, where, like, it just is very hard, I, I think, to make that, that transition. He was good and, and, in Cocoon, though. I think that was a perfect role was, for him. He was. He was. And, 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 and you know, all, and, and, but also, God, what the hell's the other one that John Badham won with Ali Sheedy also? That Short Circuit. Short Circuit. And I mean, that's problematic for many other reasons, but yes. <laughs> well, but I mean, yeah, okay. But uh, Fisher Stevens. Yes. But um, the problem, though, is you're absolutely right, is that just you watch him. And it, it's very hard to feel like very tense about what's happening to him because you just, you're like, oh, come on, it's Steve Gutenberg. <laughs> right. And of course, it, the, the movie plays into that whole thing of, again, for, for, for the, from the time that cinema was born of really kind of male fantasy thing. I mean, he he's getting, he's having an affair with his boss's wife, uh, played by Isabel Huppert. I mean, come on, but Gutenberg, that guy is getting <laughs> Isabel Huppert? No. <laughs> No, dude. And then it's like, then the fantasy gets worse. You know what, Jimmy? There is no justice in this world. <laughs> and then there's just no way. There's no way. And then, and then later in the film, he gets involved with the woman that, uh, that she sees getting attacked, right? And the whole thing is yes, that because Elizabeth they have an affair. McGovern. Right. Elizabeth McGovern. And then this is what really, I mean, totally embarrassing by today's standards is that when he is on the run, because the police think that he's killed somebody yes. he, she takes him in and they're going to solve the mystery so that's a classic staple and then you know since she'd been attacked she wasn't raped her She's, character but it, she was okay she, but she, there was an attempted it was an attempted right assault. And, and so she hasn't really been able to hook up with anybody but then she really so he's, wants he's healing yeah he's, she he's, wants <laughs> to be healed by having sex with him that night it's a really i mean no it's cringeworthy and nowadays yeah it's really yeah, awful yeah, um, yeah. and the only reason it's not like i gotta shut this off is because elizabeth McGovern is so great. 
Yes. She is. Yeah. I always liked Elizabeth McGovern, but I really feel it played into this whole male fantasy where this every man can get the, all the women. She's, she's, by the way, she's cooler than anything else in the movie. Well, except for Isabel Hubert. Well, yeah, but she <laughs> looks like, I don't know why I'm in this movie, but it's yeah. I'm trying to branch out. <laughs> Fine. I know it's ridiculous, but in France, you know, affairs happen. So, uh, and then it was what's so weird is that like, this guy is like, that like, does he's having an affair with something like, doesn't he care about his job? Like what's going to happen to this guy's job? But anyways, we could nitpick that movie if we were just doing an entire episode on the bedroom window, but it just shows you that Criterion's offered up these movies and there's some not so great ones in there too. Right. And, but the thing, it, it has a little bit of the Hitchcockian it wrong does. man, but it also has a little bit then the whole idea that he becomes the, um, the mark that and playing upon his weaknesses and um so yeah it's it's um i, I mean i i'm I, i'm worried maybe we're being a little too hard on gutenberg because like you said it's nothing he does wrong well he wasn't on my list he's, he's on your list you've been too hard on the poor guy <laughs> you know no i mean there's nothing it, he's not the reason the movie's kind of terrible it's just the plot and, and stuff it's just ridiculous <laughs> and the fact that like he would be I mean, in <laughs> way more trouble for lying on the stand and then at the end right. it's sort of like you're in trouble for lying on the stand i'm just kidding but you better get a good lawyer <laughs> like, it's like come on it's so stupid As a matter of fact i didn't even, i had forgotten about what happens at the end so i was like addressing him, like how are they not addressing the fact that the guy lied on the stand and like <laughs> like there's like double jeopardy and stuff and the guy's like gonna get out because of like and then they're like you lied on the stand you're in trouble and the cops looking at him gutenberg's like oh no i know i'll fit he's like nah, yeah. i'm just kidding but you should Wag get a good lawyer <laughs> And then, and then you hear like then you hear that eighty saxophone play and then, like freeze frame and you know see the backdrop of the city and the credits go up or whatever. Uh, <laughs> uh, and then you know pr- presumably him and Elizabeth Government live happily ever after. Right. I just want to mention in '87 three other neo noirs that were. I was probably they were probably all on my top 10 for the year. I really loved was uh, talked about it many times. Angel Heart. Yes. That's that's an interesting new noir. It's got a lot of the staples. And of course, it has Mickey Rourke, who in the 80s, for mostly, could do no wrong until he started to do wrong. But he, he was awesome. And, and was also in Body Heat. We didn't talk about how great he was, his like, performance, supporting performance. It was one of those sort of like, that's where uh, casting directors were born. like, hey, who's this guy? Because his one, he actually has two scenes, but the one main scene you really like this guy's good. And and I think that's where any actor that ends up breaking out and having a career is that you see something that they do early on that you just take notice of. Angel Hart is a, a great neo-noir. I, I think actually one of the best comments I've ever heard about uh, Angel Hart is from John Huston, who really in some ways helped originate noir. He said the first four fifths of Angel Hart are one of the best four fifths of any film I've ever seen. And the last fifth of Angel Hart is one of the worst <laughs> fifths of a film I've ever seen in my life. I can see where it would be uneasy for uh, older folks. But, well, here's the interesting thing. You brought this up in episode two, and you said that one of the staples of D.O.R. was sort of this incestuous relationships. And yes. I would say that it's that aspect is what really caused it originally to get an X rating and have to be cut because right. he... I, I don't want to give it away, but the, the, there's there's something that goes on that turns out to be very incestuous that you find out after the fact, and it's very creepy, <laughs> right? Right, hundred percent. So, anyways, that's that's one. If you're like, I, I need more, I need more neo noir. What else came out? Uh, so that was in '87, and it actually came out right around the same time that the Bedroom Window came out, maybe a little bit later. Uh, mm. Then in the summertime, we got two 
uh, neo-noirs, very different. Uh, again, one, I guess, is more of like a, a thriller, very Hitchcockian, and that's No Way Out. Right. Kevin Costner, and I don't know if it holds up as well today, but man, I love that movie, and I love the twists and stuff when I first saw that. Yes, absolutely. I really enjoyed that quite a bit. Um, I thought so, Kevin Costner, actually, it's a very fine performance by Costner. Um, Sean Young is really terrific. I remember at the time there was, and there probably would be more criticism of Will Patton's performance. I think a lot of people found it, you know, just um, particularly at the end, you know, kind of a gay villain that a lot of people were very... So that's the, But here's one thing, and again, I have, have not seen this movie in years, but here's the question is, is that he, he was a villainous character throughout yeah. but not because yeah. he was gay uh and the question is is that is a is it is that a thing where you have to you can't be a villain and be gay no i don't i don't, I don't think it's that i think i think it's sort of how they treat him mm. because there's there's a moment where fred thompson talks about him and you know the way that like where everything kind of falls apart is you know i would say that there's an interesting side discussion like we could go through a lot of these movies with the angle of what in neo-noir the portrayal has been of homosexuality and i would say that just like in most movies up until maybe recent times it's not been very it's not it's not a pretty picture the way that they're portrayed and i would say i'll point to manhunter that's actually a big plot point where the two fairy and if you think about the fairy aspect was a little bit on the on a slur homophobic on his right. homophobic and one of the things that they get try to get his attention the the tooth fairy killer is the insinuation that he's been molested and that he's molested all of his male victims yeah right. and so it brings out the homophobic rage in him and he needs to prove that he's not so there's a lot i think we could go through almost every one of these films we've talked about in just the awful ways that uh uh, that that homosexuality has been portrayed, or the jokes that come out, and then of course Absolutely. we'll get into some films that Criterion does try to include uh, one entry that is I would I would call it queer focused. Um, we'll get to that, uh, and then I offer up maybe even a better film that they didn't pick that would have been very good to put in the movie. But uh, anyways, the last film in '87. That is one of my all-time favorites, and I haven't watched it in a few years, but I will I will go back to it uh, time and time again, and I just really like it. And it's definitely a neo-noir, is The Big Easy. Yes, great film. I, in some ways, the plot is stupid, and that's, you know, as somebody said, originally it was set in Chicago, but the thing that um, Jim McBride does that is, I think, brilliant is that sets it in New Orleans and really gives it... Um, uh, a Louisiana flavor that just is much more exciting and interesting. And that star of the film is the atmosphere, the um, feeling, um, the performances, the music, uh, all of that is uh, makes for a great film. Yeah, it, it is. It's all about the atmosphere and the romance in it, but also it talks about the corruption that a lot of people now know about, you know, Louisiana and right. Kind of, this is how things are down there. And about a guy who's probably as corrupt as everybody else, and the journey kind of makes him have to take a stand a little bit. Right. Um, I, you know, again, it, it's not on Criterion's list. It's just another offering. Um, as we go into now the 90s, uh, I want to just highlight that there's a movie from 1990 I really, really, really like. Haven't seen it in years. I wanted to re- I wanted to rewatch it, just couldn't find it, is uh, Dennis Hopper's The Hotspot. Right. 
classic neo-noir. Yeah, and it came and went at the time. Uh, I remember seeing it with Teal, and he hated it. And I don't know, he was just on a on a kick. And it was hard at first to like because it had like Don Johnson at the as the lead. And at the time, Don Johnson's career was not uh, anything of note. And he felt no. he felt to audiences like he was, oh, he's that washed up guy who did uh Miami Vice. And so it felt like, oh, we have a TV star. I know it's just that was the attitude back then. But but I think I think it actually worked. It does. It's a great movie. It really did. And and Dennis Hopper, you know, did not get on with him apparently and said something like Oh, he thought he was a prima donna. Well, he did. And he said, um, you know, no. Uh, he said, you know, apparently people said we were fighting. And I, you know, said actually it's it's a compliment for him to say he is this kind of amoral drifter who like <laughs> oh my God. So um, he's like i was complimenting his performance <laughs> uh but i mean it's just everything about the plot and the everything i mean it's 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 definitely soaked in that whole noir it's neo-noir and the music ne- jack nietzsche does the music with johnny lee hooker and miles davis and sunraj it's incredible i yeah, love it yeah. and then of course it's got jennifer conley in a role and it's got uh, virginia yes. madsen and virginia madsen in in like Quite frankly, that's probably one of her greatest roles ever. You know, I mean, in the sense that she gets to go over the top and really, you know, sink her teeth into it. And boy, does she. So, uh, again, another one for you to check out. Uh, The next one on their list is not something I've seen in years. And uh, I mean, I loved it. I remember you and I saw it originally. And I I really liked the movie. Um, I think I saw it even twice in the theater. I, it's funny. It's, I don't know. I mean, it is a neo-noir, but I never thought of it that way, which I guess is why it's interesting that it's on the list, which is 1991's Homicide. Directed and written by David Mamet. Yeah. And I think it's actually one of Mamet's. I'm not always a big fan of the movies that he's directed, um, but yes. I do like this one. And part of it is visually Deacon's shot it, didn't he? Deacon shot it. Yeah. So it looks great. Um, great performances. Joe Montaigne gives a great performance. William H. Macy. Yeah gives an incredible, Ving Rhames gives a great uh, performance. And, you know, it really is noir in the sense that this guy is trying to discover, is there an anti-Semitic conspiracy that's taking place where this old woman gets shot? Is it simply an old woman gets shot in a candy store because it's a stick up or is it some sort of secret anti-Semitic conspiracy that he's discovered? And it's, um, I think, I think it, it, it is, Emmett's best film. Well, it also puts uh, the character in touch with his own Jewishness. He, he's a guy, he's a right. cop, right? Tough. And he doesn't really, he's not really religious. And no, he doesn't, I, he doesn't hide from the fact he's Jewish, but it really like, he's so, af- I don't want to say afraid, but he's, he's so blocked the history of what's gone on that this opens up wounds. Yes. And, and it's the whole idea, you know, that he, he identifies as he says, um, he's in a very masculine profession and he identifies being Jewish with somehow being effeminate and he you know has, has always tried to fight against it and so when he meets people who are Jewish who are strong um he's just very very taken in with it and of course it has some you know it has all that mammic dialogue and of course the, the one that was always remembered was when they're talking about how they hate the FBI and he's like the FBI FBI couldn't find Joe Lewis in a bowl of rice <laughs> F the FBI or something like that. That's right. That's right. No, it's, it's, it does have some great mammoth lines, you know, absolutely. 1992. Uh, this is one that I, you know, heard about for years. And so I watched it. It was a new watch for me. It was uh, Swoon. 
And this is, I guess, Criterion's one entry um, where it focused on um, a story about Leopold and Loeb. Uh, the two famous uh, college students, early 20s, was the crime of the century. They they kidnapped a boy and murdered him, and they thought they had the perfect crime. They were trying to create get a ransom, and then they, one, one of them was going to go away on a cruise, and, and it all fell apart. And this was, at a time, 1992, you did not see a lot of films about gay characters, and this was a real exploration. Um, I mean, and you get did you actually, even if they're like two men to kiss on screen was kind of a shock. And these two definitely do more than that in the movie. I don't really consider it even watching it now, though there's some neo-noir elements. I just don't see this movie as a neo-noir. Yeah, I have to say, I'm going to have to beg out of the conversation. You didn't, you didn't, you didn't, didn't watch it. I didn't, even, I didn't even get a chance to watch Why? it. Why? Because Bill's afraid to watch a movie about this type of content. That's the problem, Bill. You picked out and you watched The Bedroom Window with, with Keith Gutenberg, but a challenging movie like Swoon. No, 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 I can't. Against my Irish Catholic roots. See the problem? Billy's the problem. Yeah, uh-huh. absolutely. Yeah, I see. Absolutely. I don't even know. I don't think you can defend not seeing it. Other than the fact I will tell you. No time. That I watched it and I thought it was terrible. Um, I think it's a. You see, you, you were, you, you did, you did kind of tell me before you were like, what the hell is this thing even in here? Why are we, you know. It feels like an NYU graduate full length student film. It's just not well made. I understand the low budget. It's shot. It must have been shot in 16 millimeter black and white. I actually think it was shot in reversal, but I mean, it's just, there's just, it, it just feels very clunky and at times a little bit too artsy. And I thought the acting could was wooden in parts. And obviously they had no budget and it didn't really feel like anything that looked like it was from the 1920s, more of looked like we doing our best. And those are just elements that take me out of, a, out of the movie. You know, the story, somewhat interesting. It kind of grew on me a little bit here and there, but on the whole... I just didn't think it was that great a film, though I recognize perhaps its importance in the history of queer cinema. Right. I don't know if I really thought it was that great a film. And like I said, I felt like Criterion was trying to wedge it in to neo-noir I mean, because you had these two guys, perfect crime, it goes wrong, and the elements that kind of cover very detail all of the, the plot points of the actual story. Right. And then it got a little bit like the onion field. So I actually would... Con- I would uh, I would combo Swoon with the Onion Field in that it goes into the crime, but then afterwards, and then the court system dealings, um, and then a little bit of prison time afterwards. So that actually would be its best tie-in to me, would be the Onion Field. Right. But I also felt that the Onion Field was only a little shaky on the neo-noir. If I was to maybe substitute that out with something that I thought was a real neo-noir and also had... Um, gay subject matter would be bound. 1997, the, the Wachowski sisters. Wachowski no, brothers. They were, right, no, right. no, they're the Wachowski sisters now. Bill, again, in your uncomfortability, <laughs> you just, come on now. They are they are Lana and the other Wachowski. I don't remember what her name is now, but they had a lot going on that was subtext that audiences could either understand or not understand. Right. And I thought, and at the time was pretty bold. Uh, you didn't have a lot of uh, films about uh, lesbianism any more than you had about uh, two homosexual men. No. And it's a, it's a real humdinger of a, of a neo-noir story. So I think that people 
should look that up and see it if they haven't. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Bill's all feeling defeated. He's like, I should have seen Spoon and I'm sorry. <laughs> I got the Wachowskis wrong. It's my age. You're like, you're like Matt Damon now apologizing for using the F word until recently. How can you be 50 years old and not know that's bad? <laughs> my God. Uh, yeah, in the last couple of months. That's, I mean, I mean, we're going on a segue, but man, when I heard that, I'm like, yeah, there's some privilege and there's some privilege. And for him to not know um, that that was wrong and that it was daughters tell him, I'm like, oh, Matt Damon. I don't know. I'll have to start making some Massachusetts jokes. Oh, boy. You know, that, that I'm sorry. That, uh, anyways. Okay, so now we're moving on. Look at that. We're really we're 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 cruising along. I don't know. Yes. Hopefully we yes, can. Yes, yes. We might be able to finish this out in this episode. Make it to the well. We're in the nineties. Um, another film, uh, same year as Swoon. Really good neo noir. Um, I remember seeing it. I was one of the like maybe the only people to see it, and it's like one week run in L.A. So I did see this on his first run in the theater. It really took on a life on uh, cable and video afterwards. Video. And I didn't like it when I first saw it. Cause I don't know. I thought it, I expected one thing and I think Roger Ebert and, and Cisco flipped over this movie. And so yes. I was expecting it to be the greatest, but upon rewatches, I realized how good a movie this was is one false move by Carl Franklin. Yes. When we were talking in the first episode about cotton comes to Harlem and across 110th street, I think that, Criterion, if they wanted to augment some films about, uh, you know, that were like directed by uh, African-Americans, that uh, Carl Franklin does this story, One False Move, and it was written, wasn't it written by Billy Bob Thornton? Billy Bob Thornton wrote the script and his uh, wife at the time uh, is in it. Well, who's his wife at the time? His wife, she had been in, I think she was in Mo Better Blues. Oh, oh, Cinda Williams was, was Billy Williams. Bob Thornton's wife? They were married. I yes. did. I I did not know that. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I'm I'm fairly certain. Wow. They were. Okay. Well, I'm you just fair, offered yeah, me were. some tidbits. Yeah, and then it's so great. Like you know, it's sort of like it has a little bit of a western feel to it because these people are kind of heading into a collision course in the L.A. BD. They they figure out where these people are likely to go. And right. to go back to Cinda Williams' home in Arkansas. So they go down, and of course, Bill Paxton plays the uh, the overzealous like Arkansas guy. He wants to help out and stuff. And and Paxton's performance is incredible. And in it. it's a great performance by Paxton. In the great tradition of the neo-noir, there is other stories going on that Bill Paxton's character has a relationship with one of the characters in one false move that has that gets explored a little bit later in the film. So that's a great one. And then of course Carl Franklin comes back and does another neo noir a couple of years later, 1995, with Devil in a Blue Dress, yes. with Denzel Washington. And there's that would be a great uh, sort of pairing to see, like kind of. Uh, I guess if we were looking at Farewell, My Lovely, right? You have the Marlowe and in a post-World War II environment. And here you have a detective. It was the Easy Rollins. Easy Rollins, yeah. yeah. And that's a whole series. And unfortunately, this movie didn't do well because I would like to see more Easy Rollins stories. I would think it's actually the perfect vehicle for uh, long, long-form television. Yeah, let's get a, you know, listen, executives, let's get uh, Devil in a Blue Dress or the Easy Rollins series going. It's the first time that audiences really got to experience Don Cheadle. 
Don uh, Cheadle. Yeah, before right. they got the playing Mouse. Um, and he's like this very scary hothead guy. And uh, that's great. And Jennifer Beals is in it. Uh, yes. Tom Sizemore, man, that guy in the 90s could do no wrong until he destroyed no. his career. But uh, yeah, Devil in the Blue Dress is like a noir. It's set in the 40s, but then, you know, it's neo-noir because it's dealing with a lot of stuff that new um, regular noir movies would never do back in the day. Right. The, going back a couple of years, the next film on Criterion's list is a really kind of interesting new noir. It's a new watch for me. I had never even heard of the movie, I'll be honest, and it is called Suture. Yes, I remember reading about it and they were raving about it in the Village Voice. Okay. When it first came out, they were they were really really big uh fans of the film. And did you see it then? You know, I saw it on video, I think when it came out, and I remember being left flat by it at the time. Well, cuz it's a widescreen movie and if you saw it on video. Right. And I saw it again. And I really, really think it's uh, quite a fine film. Very good to be made on that low of a budget and really very interesting. Uh, you know, that basically it is, I would say, a classic noir. It um, just has some very interesting twists to it um, in terms of identity and amnesia, which, you know, certain things that, you know, do pop up in, in kind of classical noir. I didn't, I knew nothing about this movie. <laughs> I mean, zero. So I going in super cold. And it is this classic noir structure of this guy. He's got a friend coming in to visit him. He makes a comment on how much they uh, look alike. And there are all these like little clues being dropped throughout. And then he has to go out of town. And then the guy, I need you to drive me and uh, you're going to stay here. And They're half brothers. They're half brothers. Well, so he yeah. says that, right? But that also, of course, creates confusion and stuff because he says they're half brothers. And yet... Uh, the weird thing is, is that the guy who comes here and he says they look just alike, he is black. Yes. And that is more interesting. That's, that is beyond fascinating. It, it, well, it's fascinating because, and, and it's played by Dennis Haysbert, right? And so Dennis Haysbert, for people who know, is like, he's like the guy on that insurance commercial and he was like, uh, he played the president, David Palmer on 24. And 24, and right. Uh, and, he, and he's like, you know, he's a muscular guy, very imposing, has a deep voice and looks nothing, nothing, nothing like Vincent Towers, the guy that says, oh, we look so much alike. No. And uh, the long and the short of it is this guy is trying to escape town and he wants Dennis Haber to be the dupe. He wants him to be him and he arranges to have Dennis Haber blown up so people will think that he died instead. And right. Dennis Haber does blow up, uh, but doesn't die. And he ends up in the hospital and the guy had switched their identities and all this stuff. The thing is, which becomes very surreal, is Dennis Haber's done all these bandages, right? And he's got amnesia, doesn't remember who he is, his identity. But everybody thinks that he is the guy, Vincent. The guy who set him up. And yet Vincent is white and he's black. So like clearly what's what's interesting is this color thing, we as the audience are thrown because we see this uh, you know black actor, but everybody just thinks of him as looking exactly like this other guy. And that really Fs you up as an audience member. Right. Because <laughs> you're like, wait, I don't understand. Like, so you're you're put into like a level of sort of David Lynchian confusion. Right. And in, in the many ways, it starts to feel a lot like uh, some of his identity swapping uh, movies like Lost Highway, Mulholland Drive. And 
you're trying to figure out what game are these filmmakers playing that this is the deal. And the fact that Dennis Haysbert is black as an actor, like in real life, that never gets it never gets addressed and identified, which is brilliant. He's just this actor who's supposed to look, yet he looks nothing like that guy. So it, it, it's a real puzzle of a movie. Definitely adds to this neo-noir aspect. Well, and, and just adds a whole other level of meaning in terms of, you know, how, what life he exchanges right. for the other and his transformation. And it's, um, it's a very clever little film in many ways and i'm and i say little i mean because i i, I don't know what else the, they've done really the, not much the, the and, and this movie it, is yeah. really low budget that's actually one of my issues with the movie is it shot widescreen it shot black and white and they one of the reasons they shot it was is that well i think subtext wise not everything is black and white right 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 but it's also they felt it would be more new more noir to shoot it in black and white my problem was the way it was shot it's a little flat the cinematography so it feels like black and white that was shot in in the 90s and things looked in 90s but yet in black and white but it didn't have a lot of style and contrast and moodiness that i think that they probably just you know they didn't know how to light it that way um that i think it could have really benefited if it felt more like when the coen brothers did the man who wasn't there Right. That's a right. great new, that's a great neo. I, it's actually, to me, it's more of a noir, but it is neo noir. But I mean, it's shot so brilliantly by Roger Deakins. The title itself is very film schooly because, you know, there's a whole thing in film theory that comes out of the 60s and 70s having to do with suture. And in terms of, uh, it, it really has to do with um, how people look at something within the film. I, and I, I'm very hazy on exactly the meaning, but I think that's very clearly what they're doing because it has to do with. The people within the film don't see the color difference, but we're outside of it and we see it. I mean, yeah, again, it's an, it's it's amateurish in some parts, but here's <laughs> another fascinating part: is that it was shot in Phoenix and Scottsdale, Arizona, and right. I used to live in Scottsdale, Arizona, and I used to travel, so I used to go to that airport all the time. And even before it was announced, this is I knew exactly. I'm like, oh my god! And then I could see everything around, and it was so familiar to me. And at the end, there was. Uh, there was this like build this building that's supposed to be the guy's house. It was actually like a bank. Uh, it's a very famous uh, architectural structure, and mm-hmm. so I knew that, and I I knew all these other things. That one one thing was shot towards the end that was like really close to where I used to live, and they picked a location that they felt, you know, at the time especially like I mean, a lot of people weren't familiar with that area, and they wanted to have an area that people wouldn't just instantly recognize, um, and that they also felt was very desert, desolated, flat. So. I thought that was kind of cool too. Okay, so we've covered, we, we, we did pretty well here on episode four. And now I realize that we are not going to finish it today, but we are definitely going to wrap up uh, with our fifth episode. Uh, we will, con- you know, we will wrap up all of the criterion titles and we'll talk about some others because uh, in the meantime, and this is a message to you, the listeners, uh, some of you listeners are that you're, you're reaching out. You like, you like what we've been doing with the neo noir. Uh, one of you had recommended that I watch a film called The Kid Detective came out uh, in 2020 and I think it was on, it's on stars and I watched it. And I do want to talk about that at the very end when we get to brick. I think it actually is a good double feature with brick. And that's what this uh, listener had recommended. So, you know, we, we want to give enough time to talk about these films. Uh, so, so Billy, I hope, uh, hope we can get you back 
can we get you back here for one more Jimmy, episode? Jimmy, any any excuse just to uh, bust shops with you? Yeah. I, I promise you there'll be no there'll be no uh, neo noir queer cinema for you to have to avoid like the plague. And Billy's like, why are you painting Jimmy, me in this brush? Jimmy, Jimmy, I'm <laughs> He's telling out with you, Matt right? Damon, learning yeah, okay. not to say the F right, word. All right, listen, yeah, just, there you go. All right, you know, all so you, Bill is uh, a uh, humble it's a Massachusetts thing. Bill is a humble <laughs> servant who <laughs> respects everyone of all races, nationality, creeds, and sexual preferences. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And quite frankly, it, uh, you know, I was turned off to him because you were like, it got, it was very low on my list because you were like, ah, come on, this thing's no good. I, I mean, look, it had nothing to do with the, with like what the subject matter was. It was the no, fact of course is that not. I, it of course just not. not. You just said, you just, just said it didn't, it didn't fit. And it was, so it, it was low on my list. And, you know, there's only so many hours you can watch. A, there's you know, one completionist between the two of us. It's me. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, you know, it was hard. It was a hard sit at first because I just felt the filmmaking. Uh, you know what, Jimmy, just to show you now, just despite you, <laughs> I'm going to watch this just despite you. Okay. Well, you, so you on the what? next episode, we can start with that. All right. Okay. You get, there you go. Me and the rabbit will, uh, you, you know, let you have it. Okay. <laughs> well, look, you know, you always add a unique perspective and sometimes you watch a film that I say I didn't like. And then you're like, you know, Jimmy, let me tell you something. I did like it. And here's why I liked it. And that's why I find it fascinating to get the differencing of opinions. Fine. So I, I, I'll, I'm going to try to check it out. And, you know, and Leopold and Loeb, it's, it's a, um, a story that's been done on the screen many times yeah and so it, yeah. it really is actually i would say and and does fit in in noir well, so i'm already see, well, people back. could see rope as a double feature with it As a matter Absolutely. of fact I, I feel like that there's been times when criterion has paired those two up so um anyways stuff we've seen.com feedback at stuff we've seen.com uh criterion channel uh they don't pay us uh they don't ask us to do this but uh we love the channel you should subscribe there's so much we pay them we pay them it's true <laughs> um and then uh, you know again i want to just wet your whistle billy but guess what i'm now moving into now that i've gotten through these new noirs and i know you're busy i'm just throwing this out there because you just may be too good an offer for you to john houston <laughs> yes hey, I'm, I'm diving in i'm watching because it, partly for you because you said you're such a Mitchum fan. I started watching So Long Mr. Allison or or Heaven Knows Mr. Allison. Heaven Knows Mr. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if you saw that or not, but uh, Mitchum looking young. A long time ago. Well, yeah, but you probably saw it on video and it is a widescreen movie, CinemaScope, and it looks gorgeous. So you should... uh, Uh, I'm probably going to check it. But the other thing actually I was going to say that's on Criterion right now that I really want to see, the Bud Boddicker Westerns. The Bud Boddicker Westerns. Oh yeah, yeah, very good. You may very have good to, stuff. You may have to uh, start your own podcast for that one. But <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know, but uh, you know, if I get time, man, if you're like Jimmy, I want to do a Bud Boddicker <laughs> podcast. Can we do it? Then maybe you'd get me to watch it. But I know that school season is approaching, and you're going to be busy. You know, you are. Yeah, I respect yeah, that yeah. you are a teacher. You're very busy. Um. So, you know, we're I'm, well, anything for you, Jimmy, anything for you yeah. and, and good news <laughs> and good news to you. People are like, oh, when is, is that teal guy coming back? You know, again, I can't promise anything. Right. But he tells me, he tells me, he sends me secret messages that he is, you know, he's in progress of moving. And it's the longest move in history, this guy. But he says that he's, you know, he's ready to come back at the end of August. He'll have everything set up. He thinks he has better Wi-Fi. He's predicting and uh, he's, you know, gearing to go. He's going to get to get a maybe a new camera you know because we do have the ability to do Very some good. video um and we'll see you know i mean uh, it will be good to get him back and you know he definitely has some things that he wants to talk about so 
you know, we may have him back. Who knows? Uh, but until then, you know, then then we'll be pretty dry if he doesn't come back. Because Billy, you're busy. You're you're a busy guy. Too busy to watch Swoon, but you know, you know, not too busy to put Gutenberg on your list. <laughs> I just love busting I'm, balls, I'm a, big, Maury. I'm, a big, I'm a big, I'm a big Curtis Hansen fan. You gotta you, stop actually, busting yeah. balls, Maury. <laughs> I want my money. He got his money. I watch him all the time. I want my money. And poison on my eyes. <laughs> you unconscionable ball breaker. <laughs> oh man, I could do like every line from that movie, Goodfellas. I know. <laughs> That's the greatest. <laughs> all right. Uh, by the way, um, when you when we do meet again in person, I'm going to have to take you to the, the place that they shot that in. Oh, the diner, uh, the bar. Oh, no, oh, oh, well, oh. there's that 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 place that place closed down. Oh, the airport recently. diner. That was in, no, well, no, the airport or that's open. The the one that they hung out in all the time where he like kicks the phone booth over. Yes, that yes. was in Maspeth. That just got shut down oh. a while back. Yeah, and then um, but the the bar that they all hang out in is this place called Nears. Oh, which, is that the uh, one where uh, where Billy Bats? No, oh. no, that's is that, that bar that's still the open? one. The one, the one where he comes in and he's like, you know, hey, you know, look at that car. It's a coupe. Is that beautiful car? Or what, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you know what we should do? It'd be great if we could go. But this will be a special segment, a video segment. Is that I would bring my uh, well, I guess my iPhone has a camera to it, and we would videotape all. We would go on a tour, a Goodfellas sighting tour of all the scenes of the movie that exist still. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm sure I'd, I'd be very 10 happy people will watch that. But <laughs> <laughs> I'd be one of those 10 because that sounds good to me. Anyways, uh, Billy, thank you again for your time, your thank service, you, um, and, you know, and your undying loyalty to me. <laughs> All right. And the listeners, if you're still there, if you haven't tuned out on this, you're like, this is the fluff that I hate. Um, thank you for listening. As always, as we do it, we do it for ourselves so you can hear we're having a blast. Uh, but we also do it for you. And uh, go see some stuff, as I always say, and you still plenty of it to watch on uh, Criterion. And if that, if you've like gone through the whole list and like I need more, just contact us. I, I will give you more to listen to watch. I know I love lots of movies, but I'm glad that we're going to do another part five because there's a whole bunch of other movies that I wanted to just mention that we weren't going to do if we would had to like finish it up today. I've lost Billy. He's tired. No, no, no. I'm here. I'm here. He's like, I'm, here. I'm exhausted, Jimmy. I, just, I gotta go. Yeah, sorry. I just went to a fugue state. I know. There you go. <laughs> gotta go. All right, Billy. Uh, <laughs> later, dude. All right. Take care. Bye. Because now have you set my soul on fire and I really had my fun.